Confronting abortion in the Christian witness and the difficulties and the challenges and the necessities of it. I want you to notice almost immediately from the book of Acts, uh, the fifth chapter, notice something immediately of vital importance. The scene is set, the apostles are in prison, the men of God are uh, shackled for their preaching of the gospel. And what we notice immediately, that an angel was charged to bring a release to the apostles. But notice the angel was not charged to preach the gospel or to teach the gospel. The charge to preach and teach was laid upon the apostles. Now as you consider that, what is the point? Well, surely the angel who brought them out of prison was quite well capable or sufficient to have gone into the public square, gone into the public square to bring the gospel to the people. Surely the angel who brought them out of this physical prison could spiritually bring people out of their spiritual prisons. Surely the angel was more than capable of doing that. But that was not to be the case. It must not be that way. The commission of the angel is clear. His commission only permits him to say to the apostles, go speak to the people. It does not permit him to join in their testimony. Now this, I believe, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is an important point for us in our gathering this morning. Surely it would have been better, like I've said, if the angel went into the temple and preached the gospel. Surely that would have brought a great result. Or so we think. But God had a different plan, a far better plan. It is, a, it is a plan that the preaching of the gospel must be undertaken by believing men, by redeemed men. Surely, I say to you today, even in the listening of the man standing before you, surely you have, you have come today to hear the word of the living God. And surely, today I say to you, my friends, would it not have been better if an angel occupied this pulpit today? That you had come to hear the magnificent call of a being from heaven come before you today and proclaim to you the word of the living God. That his voice would not only fill this chapel, but fill the entire city. Would it not be better for an angel to stand before you this morning? But I tell you, my friends, that is not God's plan. God has planned that a man stand before you today. A saved man, a redeemed man. Why? Because that man has a witness just like you. He's a man just like you, a common man. And God's plan is that the common man in the pulpit has a sympathy with you that the angels cannot feel. No, no. For the angels are not struck with infirmities. They're not humbled by imperfections. We, the ministers who stand in the pulpit, we know your sins. We know your sorrows. We know your struggles. We know the roughness of the road you travel, for we too travel that road. We too have struggled up that road called despondency and almost collapsed on that hill called difficulty. We know this. And God in his sovereign plan has so ordained it that an angel should not stand before you today, but a man. And the man who stands before you today will testify in and through this message of what it means to stand in the public square in the matter of the sin of abortion. To take the ridicule from the public, to be threatened with imprisonment, to find missiles uh, in the city thrown at you or launched at you like never before. 
To find that your wife has been assaulted by someone because of your preaching. To find that the church, uh, that the, the man pastors, who is a predominantly uh, a ch- a church of, uh, of, of more dark-skinned people, blessed with more melanin, we say. And you find that this church comes under serious racial attack every time they step out into the public square. That the man who stands before you today has been told 101 times and more, go back to the country you've come from. We don't need you in our city anymore. This, this city doesn't belong to you. We don't need you anymore. You see, an angel will not be able to tell you that today. And God in His sovereign plan has allowed a man to stand before you to tell you. Beloved in Christ, God could have used an angel on that day, but He didn't. He chose men. And as He's chosen men then, He continues to choose men. Men who have been redeemed by Him, saved by Him, called by Him to preach the great and glorious gospel. And if you are here today, you are called also to be a witness of Christ, to preach His great and glorious truth. And oh, my friends, as you think about that today, you may be thankful for many things, but aren't you so thankful? I am so thankful, and I do hope you are indeed, thankful that the Lord has chosen us to be His vessels in this united kingdom to bring the great and glorious truth to a sin-soaked nation. What a blessed privilege indeed to stand in the public square, to stand on the pulpit in the public square, to step on that ladder and say, ladies and gentlemen, I stand as an ambassador of God today to bring you the best news you will ever hear today. It is not news of the budget. It is not news of plans to one one nation annexing another nation, though that is news. But I stand today in the clarity of voice and heart to declare to you the best news you will have here today, that Christ came to die for sinners such as you. The best news they will hear. My friends, this is the great honor that we have. God has bestowed it upon us. There is no greater honor, I tell you. Oh, you must, I tell you, you must be sitting here as a CEO of a company or a head of marketing or a manager of a human resources. You may have your own business and be uh, wonderfully successful in that. But nothing, I tell you, my friend, compares with the preaching of the gospel. Amen. Nothing. You may have had headed up many projects. You may have um, overseen many things online. And to God be the glory, for I believe you've done it for the glory of God. But there is nothing that compares with the preaching of the gospel. He has honored us with this by choosing us to be His preachers in this time and in this season. So I must preach the gospel and so must you. For this is what God commands us to do. Now... We say, as we look at the text, uh, these men were chosen to preach. But what are they to preach? Well, the text makes it clear from verse 20. The angel instructs the apostles, go speak the whole message of this life. Go speak the whole message of this life. That, in, in, in essence, refers to the content. Oh, I teach and preach when I, uh, when I speak on this matter about the many C's of our public preaching, one of them being the content. You see, there are many people out there with, that are loose cannons in the public preaching of the gospel. They pay no attention to their content. And you walk by a street preacher and you can say who he is, how much he studied, and how much he knows about the doctrine of salvation by just listening to him. Our dear brother made reference to that uh, this morning. 
I was one of them. I tell you, I do not mean to take your time. I know we're already over time. But I say to my dear brother today, as he spoke about the prosperity preachers, and I agree with him entirely. Why? Because standing before you right now, my dear friend, is an ex-Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith, prosperity preacher. Me. I was on television three times a week. Not only in the UK, but overseas. And we had a church in a 19,000 square foot warehouse. I had six people on staff preaching the very thing our brother was speaking about. Not the gospel at all. I do not deserve to stand before you today. I am a false prophet. I was a false prophet. I'm creating notes about my life. I'm calling it the confessions of a false prophet. Because all through my television days and preaching in the United States and all over the place, I preached a false gospel. I do not deserve to stand before you today. But God in His amazing grace and in His sovereign will has given me the ability one more time to lead a small band of believers in Bristol for the preaching of the gospel. And to this I am committed. And to that end, I must attend to the preaching of the gospel. And I call you today, my friends, to that end, to attend to the preaching of the gospel wherever you come from today. Let us continue that the content is important. They have to preach the whole message of this life. The content is so important, my friends. Part of our preaching of the gospel in our city is that none of the men who take to the pulpit in the public square can stand up and preach without me first checking the text that they are bringing. These are mature men. These are men of prayer. But as a matter of our accountability of content, we check with each other what we're going to preach. If you have no Bible in hand and you have no text, you're not allowed to preach with us in Bristol. The content is so important. So we have to go preach, but not just open our mouths and just say nothing. Or say something that makes no sense. We have to preach the whole message of this life. This is what the angel commanded the apostles. Friends, you must preach the gospel and nothing else. No stories are required. No personal testimonies need to be told. No anecdotes from one side to another side. No illustrations about your holiday, this place and the other place. The gospel needs to be preached. The whole message of this life needs to be proclaimed. Even in the pulpits, my friends, I do not know how some ministers have time to tell jokes. I do not know where the time comes from. For as soon as you started, you realize you're already gone into one hour. And you th I wonder how they spend so much of time telling jokes and bringing unnecessary illustrations into their sermons. We must attend to the preaching of the gospel in the public square. And the whole message of this life is exactly that. It is the real person and work of Jesus Christ. We've got no time to entertain what our, even our brother was speaking of this morning. Some caricature of Jesus Christ. Some idea that the church has that Jesus Christ is some blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy with sandals and long hair. He's the guy that everybody loves. That's the Jesus they want to hear about. Tell us about that Jesus. We've got no time to talk about that Jesus because it's not Jesus. We say who the real Jesus Christ is. And I say to you, my friends, when you say who the real Jesus Christ is, here's what you're doing. You're creating bloodshed. Why? In the preaching of the gospel, there is bloodshed. We draw the sword indeed and we plunge it deep into the heart of sinners. And when that happens, there's bloodshed. How is the bloodshed manifested? It is manifested in the vile anger of the sinner who's hearing that without Jesus Christ, he will perish in hell. Amen. He wants to hear that he's a good man. He wants to hear that he's going to heaven. 
He doesn't want to hear what you've just said. So it's messy. It's messy indeed. We are called to preach the gospel and to that we must attend. The whole message of this life. Oh, I say to you, my friends, today, there are some who say, well, the whole message of this life, the gospel does not, we don't need to bring in the abortion issue when we speak about the gospel. Some will say, why not just preach the gospel? Even this past Thursday, a man from a very prominent evangelism group was going past, and uh, I know him um, as belonging to this large evangelism group in the UK, and uh, we were addressing the sin of abortion in the public square in our city. And then when the man walked up to me in the crowd of about 50 people that had gathered to hear, a man walked up to me and said, why don't you just preach the gospel? This is a common theme amongst Christians, a common theme among churchgoers, a common theme among those who carry Bibles and sing the songs. They believe abortion to be just an issue, a political issue, a social issue, an issue that only certain people need to be addressing, like, like the pro-life groups and people like that. It's just an issue, they say. Well, I say to you, my dear friends, wholeheartedly, it has everything to do with the gospel. Why? Because abortion is murder, murder is sin, and the only cure for sin is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So part of the challenge we face is not only opposition from without, but the opposition from within. The opposition from without we can understand, because sinners do what sinners do, as our brother said. We can understand the opposition that comes from without. And you've heard me say in a few minutes some of the opposition we've had. Well, but what about the opposition from within? You will hear the unbelievers say, we don't want to hear about abortion today. You're disturbing the peace in our city. We don't want to hear and read your signs. We can understand that from the unbeliever. But when we get that problem from within the church, Oh, my dear friend, does it not cause us to weep and lament over the church? Does it not show us who the real church is? That there is no compassion, really, for the unborn child. There is no heart for the innocent. There is no heart for the defenseless. Children are a gift from God. Psalm 127. What a wonderful gift that is. A gift from God. And I say to you, my friends, there's not only... An opposition from without, an opposition from within. But I say, and this has weakened the church. Many people have left the church because of this. But I say the church should be strong and bold. Amen. Not only in its preaching, but in its planning to preach about abortion. Oh, my friends, do not, do not run away from this today. Or walk away thinking, oh, I need to go and do abortion ministry. No. You need to speak with your pastor. You need to speak with your elders and plan and strategize how you're going to do this. You need to prepare the church for what is to come. One of the reasons why I have all of my church with me uh, uh, when we preach the gospel every Saturday or two Saturdays of, of a month now. And many a minister has asked me, he said, how do you get your church involved? I said, because I've spent time planning and preparing them for this. They know what to expect with every question and they know how to answer every question. They know what to expect when people become violent and they know how to respond. They know how to respond to the police officers. They know how to respond to various things that come. We must prepare these soldiers for war. Amen. 
And so I say, my friends, the church should be strong and bold in its planning and in its strategy to teach and preach on the sin of abortion. Yet we find churches weak and apologizing. They become not very good in apologetics, but very good in apologizing. Oh, I find many, many a Christian in our city from the Church of England and Methodist churches and, 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 and some new fandangled church on the corner uh, getting up before the crowd and telling people, Hey, people, listen, I'm a Christian. I don't believe what this man is saying. He's not talking about Christianity. That's not the Christianity that I believe, they say. Don't listen to him. Many a Christian has done that. Why? Because the church is weak in its understanding. These are men and women who are ashamed and embarrassed. When we speak about abortion or make clear the biblical worldview on abortion. So I say this is not only the case in the pews, but it's also the case in the pulpit itself. I have sat in ministers fraternals around the lunch table after we finish a session. And they will all speak. These ministers, reformed ministers, will all speak about the various projects that they're undertaking. And then it comes to me, oh dear, what are you doing? And I say, well, you know, this week... I almost got arrested. I got beaten up a few times for preaching the gospel and we were preaching about abortion. And the table goes silent. I say to you, my friends, nobody wants to talk to me after that. It all goes silent. They distance themselves from you. And one of the challenges I'm answering, the assignment given to me, one of the challenges we have is that we as a Reformed Baptist Church are the loneliest in our city. We have no minister friends. We have no fraternals that want us. We have nobody that wants to pray with us. Nobody. It's lonely. It's lonely. None of them, none of my ministers, would, our friends would say, hey, we heard you going out. Can we pray for you? Nothing. It's quiet. Why? They don't want rumblings in their own church. They don't want to be associated with this church who are called extremists. And I will focus on that word towards the end of my message today. What does it mean to be an extremist? Because I believe these apostles were extremists. Amen. But not extremists in the sense that we know extremists in the biblical sense. And God is calling us to be extremists. I want to be an extremist. They speak about their projects in the church. They, they work on how to get a good coffee morning going. And how to do some jumble sale here, there, and everywhere. They fail to recognize, my dear friends, the sin of abortion. My dear friends, the statistics are clear. Over 800 babies a day are murdered in the name of my body, my choice. More human beings, more lives have been taken through abortion than World War I, World War II, or whatever war you're going to call. It's all put together. Over 800 human lives. Boys who will never ride a bike. Girls who will never walk down the aisle in the hand of their father. Women that will never become mothers. Boys that will never become fathers. Killed in the name of my body, my choice. It's a sin. The taking of human life is a sin. I tell you, my friends, it is something that must be addressed in the church. But when you address it, there is widespread consequence. There's no doubt about it. I stand before you soberly, having taken a sober decision many years ago to begin public preaching. I did not want to public preach. I did not want to public preach. There was a man in my church who was an army major. He was one of our deacons. 
He got arrested with three other men in Bristol. They were called the Bristol Four. Christian Concern represented them in court. And we sat in the court and I heard for the first time the Crown Prosecution make the case that the Bible is an offense and should not be read in the public square. I was grieved. I was embarrassed all at the same time. That I can stand in my pulpit Sunday after Sunday and speak the doctrines of grace all the way from total, total depravity to preservation of the saints and nobody stoning me. I'm safe. But these men are standing in the public square making the name of Jesus known and they're getting arrested. I was embarrassed. So I started to prepare my church and we stepped out into the public square. And the church said, you're not going alone, we're going with you. And that's how our journey began. Preaching in the public square. That's how our journey began. It took the arrest of these men to drag me into the public square to preach God's word. So I say to you, my friends, the consequence has been drastic for us. We went from 80 people attending our Sunday morning, now down to 35 people. Did they leave only because of the abortion issue? No. They left for other reasons as well. You find the consequences there. People not willing to sit and listen to you speak about this sin. But we've not fallen weary, brothers and sisters. Do not feel sorry for me. We've not fallen weary or weak. We are much strengthened in the Lord. God is our strength. He is our grace. He is our strong tower. He is our refuge. God is at work, brothers and sisters in Christ. God has not lost control of His church. Many a man will say the state of the church in the United Kingdom. I say, my friends, the true church is thriving. Men and women are thriving in the, in the true church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has not lost control of His church. And by God's, God's good grace, we have been preaching ever since. This is what Peter and John did. They preached the gospel. They used their words. They obeyed what they were instructed to do. And the result we see in verse 27 and 28. And when they had brought them and they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What was the teaching they filled Jerusalem with? Well, the answer is found in verse 30 to 31, that God our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, they were preaching the gospel. And so our task is clear. We must remain faithful to the preaching of the gospel. And remain faithful to the preaching of the gospel to such a point where we fill our cities, we fill our villages with that name by which man must be saved, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We must do that. Oh, the constabulary of our city has uh, constructed a 19-page document addressed at how dear Moodley and his congregation should not be allowed in the city of Bristol to preach. Part of that 19-page document is from the Church of England. They wrote three pages. Having listened to my sermons, the police sent them my sermons. Having listened to my Sunday morning, Lord's Day morning services and what we preach in the public square. They've made it clear that there is no such thing as hell. This is the Church of England. No such thing as hell. No such thing as judgment. It's layers and layers of man's interpretation, they say. 
Therefore, therefore, our church is a poor example of Christianity. I'm paraphrasing. They went to the Mary Stopes abortion clinic, which is now called MS, and took a report from them. Mary Stopes wrote a three-page report saying this, that whenever Mr. Moodley and his congregation are here, we have to postpone abortions. Praise the Lord. They said whenever he's here, we have to postpone abortions. Uh, they went on to say, which means that mothers have, got, have to carry their babies longer. I say, praise the Lord. The police officers who attend to us preaching are complaining to their senior officers. We do not want to attend when Mr. Moodley is preaching because we are now suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You laugh, it's true. The task is clear, my friends. The point I'm making about this is that the 19-page document could be summarized into this. You're making too much a noise in our city. We need you to be quiet. We need you to be quiet. We don't want to hear about this. My friends, I tell you today, my brother Peter knows about this, has been praying with me. They first, last year, they issued me with a notice saying that you're not allowed to speak to an evolutionist. You're not allowed to speak to any Muslim. I'm not allowed to speak any derogatory words about the LGBTQ. They were going to govern what we say about abortion. I'm not allowed to have anyone stand in my place to preach the gospel in Bristol. Neither recorded or somebody literally there, physically there. And they tried to get away with it. They tried to get away with it. But they're not getting away with it. They're not getting away with it. It's costing us a lot of money for them to not to get away with it. Because we're funding our legal fees ourselves. And so far it's in the region of 12,000 pounds. A small congregation of poor people are walking by faith believing that if we honor the Lord, the Lord will honor us in making sure that His name is proclaimed. Who knows, maybe the Lord wants me to stand before the judge as we put your hand on that book as we stand and say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? We will hear the truth on that day. Amen. So please keep us in prayers for that. And so we find that the task given to me was to speak of... Um, what abortion is in the Christian witness, and if I have not done a pretty good job of it so far, please excuse me. But also some of the, 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 the hindrances and the challenges we've been having. Well, in my sermons I speak in my church about the early church, which if you're a pastor here today, you've probably done a better job than me in, in, in teaching your church about the early church. But one of the things I recognize about the early church, one of the things that stands out to me is that truly how successful they were in their proclamation of the gospel. As we study the book of Acts, we see quite clearly that the first generation church in one sense did more for, the, more for evangelizing the accessible world at that time than any succeeding generation. It's hard to look over human history and see any generation, even and including the generation of the reformers of the 16th century, who affected the world more than these simple believers in the book of Acts. They did not have technology. They did not have what we have today, cell phones, tablets, and apps, and emails. They were not salaried by a church or promised any rewards or benefits. Yet they turned the world, as our brother said, right side up for the Lord. They stood in the public square and proclaimed the gospel. Oh, what fine examples they are to us. 
and how far, how far we have fallen, my friends. And I say we have fallen in shame and, in, and to embarrassment of the gospel. The angel says, go. Now notice something else in the text. It says they were to preach immediately. Go preach. After releasing them from prison, they were to go preach immediately. No time to be wasted. So the angel released them from prison and they were, told to go, they were not told to go home and rest. They were told to go home and preach. They were not told to go gather their thoughts and to debrief after their most traumatic prison experience. Oh, some of us, my friends, we become so weak in our Christianity. So weak. I think the word snowflake aptly applies to many in the church as well. We crumble and fall so easily. Our knees have become weak. Men are no longer men of faith. We cannot speak of a man of God like we know in the Bible or in church history. We become so weak. At the smallest of any hindrance or obstacle, we want to debrief and go for post-traumatic stress disorder treatment. We want an English cocker spaniel to lick our face to make us feel better. Not so with these men. These men were imprisoned and the angel says, Okay, prison doors open, you're not going home, you're going into the public square. Immediately to preach. And that's what they did. That's what they did. They went into the public square. And this word, my friends, if you forget everything else, this word is important for you. Go. He says, go. Go into the public square and preach the gospel. Those words echo in my mind. That word echoes in my mind as it should in your mind today. Go and preach the gospel. The opposite of the word go is come. Go and come. Those two words are important in the church. We come to church to be equipped. And after being equipped, we go into the world. So we must come to the church. And the pastor's job then is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Come to church, be equipped, and then go. In our church, we say it this way. We gather to scatter. We gather in to be trained so that we can scatter geographically to preach the gospel. And that's what happened in the early church. That's what we see in the book of Acts. They gathered in order to scatter. Oh, but we in the 21st century have a different understanding of things. We are too prone to linger and to lounge. We are too prone to laziness and lethargy. We are too prone to disobedient and dis- disobedience and disagreement. We are too prone to excuses and exemptions. My dear friends today, beloved in Christ today, we must learn and we must listen. We must follow the example here in the book of Acts. We must follow the example of those who have gone before us and act promptly. Respond quickly. Why? For the souls of men and women are at stake. We must gather to be equipped, trained, even on the matter of the sin of abortion. And one of the challenges, I'm answering my my assignment this morning. One of the challenges is that the church is not prepared, trained to handle the sin of abortion. Not trained. Ministers are not spending enough time on the matter. Training their people on how to handle, for example, the many questions that come, whether it is from rape or incest to affordability, we're not training people to answer those questions. I believe much training must be given to it. Now we find there's something else. The apostles could have said, well, it's not enough that we've uh, 
seeing the angel uh, release us from prison, maybe we can spend more time with the angel. Maybe we could spend more time in conversation with the angel. Maybe as we spend more time in conversation with the angel, we can get to know what heaven is really like. Here's an opportunity. The angel releases us. Let's grab him and hold on to him and say, come on, tell us more about heaven. Tell us more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They don't do that. They obey the command and they're out in the public square doing what they've been commanded to do. What's the point of what I'm saying? We gather so much in our churches, in the confines of our churches, and we cling to good teaching as we should do. We know our soteriology better than many other people. But yet in all of our knowledge, we are still within the confines of our church. We haven't stepped out. Oh, I feel sad for my city. We are the only reformed church in our city declaring the gospel, knowing biblical view of salvation. And yet there are people in their hundreds that come during summertime from this Pentecostal church and that charismatic church and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. They're all out there. But yet those who know sound doctrine are not out preaching the gospel. So I say to you, my friends, we must leave the confines of our church. We must leave the comforts of our church. We must get up after receiving a good sermon and go. Go, my friends, we must go. We must go to where the sinners are. We must go to where babies are being murdered. We must go to the very altars where child sacrifice is taking place. Where is that place in your city that you come from? Where are those altars in your city? Where are those places where children are being sacrificed every day? If you haven't already found out, my dear friends, find out. Speak to your church. Talk about how you can go there and plead for the life of the unborn child. But I say to you, my friends, we're not, just, we're not just pleading for the life of the unborn child on the matter of pro-choice. No, this is pro-gospel. This is a gospel message. We don't just want you to save your child because even if you save your child, you go to hell without Christ. It's not just about pro-choice. It's pro-gospel. We want you to hear of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We're called to go to leave the confines and the comforts of our church and go to where babies are being murdered. Go into the public square and speak to those who have had abortions and continue to celebrate that they will have more abortions. Oh, my friends, I tell you, my friends, one of the assignments given to me is talk about the challenges. I have not and I will not take much time talking to you about the challenge that it is to me. The number of times I've got up before my congregation to give a report and broke down in tears crying. The night after night that I could not sleep because I hear a woman in my ear saying, I've murdered three babies and I'll murder even more. And you think to yourself, how can humanity say this? But my friends, as our brother has said, this is the state of our nation. There is blood running in the streets of our nation and it's the blood of innocent children. The wrath of God is kindled against us. The, the judgment of God is upon us. The heavy cloud that Jonathan Edwards uh, talks about is hanging over our nation. And it's only by the grace of God that that cloud hasn't broken. And God's judgment and wrath poured upon us. The church, I close with this, were extremists. The early church were extremists. Verse 27 to 29. And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. I close with this, my friends. We must obey God rather than men.
I was asked by the police, my why do you want to get beaten up? Why do you want to continue like this? Can you not see how your wife has suffered injury? Can you not see how the dear sister on Thursday, elderly member of our congregation, holding a sign and the sign says, Psalm 127, children are a gift from God. That's what the sign said. The young woman was offended at that sign, tried to grab it and our dear sister hung on to it for dear life. And because the person could not grab the sign, they decided the next best thing was to push her. And that's what they did. They pushed her against the bank glass and she fell to the floor and she, in, she injured her left leg. My friends, my friends, why? Why? Because we must obey God rather than men. Amen. We must. We must indeed obey God rather than men. Oh, I say to you, my friends, even as the police came, they said, Shall you, will, you not, will you not change the topic? We not try and talk about something else. Look how upset the people are. If you go down this route, we have to take this kind of action and that kind of police action. And as we respectfully say to everyone in uniform, we respect the office that you hold and the law that you have to uphold. This is the law we uphold. This is our permit to preach. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go and tell people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That there are sinners and the only way they can be saved is to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not Muhammad, not Krishna, not Buddha, not Confucius, not the Prime Minister, nor any Chief Constable. We must obey God rather than man. I say to you, my fair friends, Hugh Latimer, the English reformer, often preached before King Henry VIII. And on one occasion, he enraged the king with his boldness. So he was commanded to preach the following weekend and make an apology. On the next Sunday, after reading the text, he addressed himself uh, as he began to preach. He said, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him, therefore. Take heed. That you speak not a word that may displease, but then consider well, Hugh. Don't you know from where you've come? Who is it that sent you out with a message? You're sent by the great mighty God who is present everywhere and who beholds all your ways and is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. End quote. Whether we stand before kings and priests, the farmer or the laborer or the common worker, the message must be the same. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. Well, the apostles did not say, we must take some wise counsel here yeah, and not offend these men. We must take some wise counsel here. Yeah, maybe we'll pull back a little bit. I say, no, my brothers and sisters in Christ. To do that would be giving in to the enemy. We must obey God rather than men. They didn't say, well, we should stop preaching at the abortion clinic now because the pastor has been beaten up so many times. And that's true. The message has come to me from people all over the world, including people in our city. are standing outside an abortion clinic pleading with the man not to kill his baby. He walks out, he comes behind me and knocks me at the back of my head and I fall down and I get a, I fall down, I hit the pavement and there's a concussion. I saw for three weeks with that concussion. We were back at the abortion clinic. 
In the middle of the COVID crisis, a woman walks out the abortion clinic. I'm standing and engaging with her and saying with her, please, we'd rather take your baby. She spits into my eye in the middle of the COVID crisis. And all sorts of things are going through my mind. The first thing I want to do is say, tell me, can you get a blood test so that I can see that you're okay so that I can be okay? Standing in town preaching the gospel, there's no bricks anywhere to be found, no stones anywhere to be found. The crowd goes and buys potatoes. And they bring the potatoes. And because they couldn't get to me or the large crowd was in front, they got to my wife. And they hit us straight in the chest. I heard the thud on that day like never before. I stepped down. I said, love, are you okay? And she began to cry in pain. She bent over in pain. And then I said, okay, enough. I'm going to stop preaching today. And with the crying voice, she said, love, don't stop preaching. Step up and preach again. So I got up with tears in my eyes and I began to preach. And God did the most amazing thing. This crowd of 80 people fell silent. God's grace fell upon them. Because how can you get up and preach again? You've just been abused. I got up and preached again. I tell you, my friends, for half an hour, they said nothing. Amen. Nothing. And they heard Christ proclaim to them on that day. They say, my friends, we should obey God and not men. I do not want to take any more of your time, but say this to you. That we leave our home every Saturday as men going to war. Amen. It, is that, it is exactly that, a war. I do invite you to our city. Please come labor with us. I have no idea how it happens in your city, but ours is a war zone. And Jesus tells us, he warns us of it. It should have been of no surprise to us. I send you out as sheep among the wolves. The wolves' only task is to devour the sheep. And that's what they do every time we lift up the name of Jesus in our city. So we teach the men of our city. The women come out with us, those who can. But for others with babies looking after uh, little ones at home who send their husbands, I say to these dear sisters, send your husband as he's going to war. Give him that kiss as he's going to war. But that's exactly what he's doing. You know, you watch it in these war movies and the wife comes to the train station or at the ship and give them a kiss as they go to war. And then wait at home either with a candle in the window or a flower waiting for them to come back home. That's exactly what it is, my friends. We go to war in the public square. We have our marching orders. And I end with this. Do you have your marching orders? What are you doing with the marching orders that have been given to you? Have you become derelict in your duty, soldier? For the orders have been given to the church. The orders have been given to you. Go. But maybe you'll say like that young man in the early 1900s, late 1800s in England who was commissioned by the church to go to the hill tribes of India. He said to the pastor who commissioned him as he laid hands upon him, he said, will they understand what I have to say to them? And the pastor wisely, the, the gray-haired pastor wisely said to him, that is not your task or responsibility or worry. All you have to do is go and preach the gospel. Amen. Whether they understand you or not, is not your problem. The order is to go. Amen. My friend, we have our orders. Our orders is to go preach the gospel, to go serve the master and our king. And I end with this. A quote from Charles Spurgeon when he said this. He said, beloved friends, the church of Christ needs a band of men and women full of enthusiasm who will go beyond others in devotion to the Lord Jesus. We need missionaries who will dare to die to carry the gospel to regions beyond. 
We need ministers who will defy public opinion with flaming zeal, burn away into men's hearts. We need men and women who will consecrate all that they have by daring deeds of heroic self-sacrifice. Oh, that all Christians were like this, but we must have at least some. End quote. The Lord be praised. Amen.